Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 106th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. I sound a lot better, don't I? You do. Yeah. Not 100% good. yet, but I'm, I'm feeling good. You're getting there. Well, yes. good. I'm glad you're past that. I could barely understand you last week. My gosh, those sinuses were just, my they were barking. They were. They were. Um, well, Matt, last golf major of the year this week. It's the British Open at Royal St. George's. Um, my pick this week, since I was on hiatus last week, um, is going to be Louis Oosthuizen. All right. So he's a South African that has won the Open before when he was younger, and he's playing really well right now. So that's my pick for this week. I'm going to keep the trend. I'm sticking with you, buddy. <laughs> um, so we'll get into it. And as always, take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month of the, and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on July 12th. S&P 500 index up 2.05% for the month and up 16.76% for the year. The Dow up 1.43% for the month and up 14.34% for the year. The NASDAQ up 0.26% for the month and almost 13% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 1.2% for the month and up 15.5% for the year. Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, is flat for the month of July and up 9.2% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently sits at 0.05% in terms of yield. The two-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.23%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is at 1.36%. Um, so pretty quiet in terms of news and headlines from the past week, Matt. Um, there was a note that caught my eye, um, actually, that Nick Whitaker in our office sent to me on June 30th. It was from briefing.com. just want to leave listeners with a little snippet from this article. Okay. Um, so they said, every sector except utilities... Uh, down 1% has contributed to the second quarter gain, but the market knows where its bread has been buttered this quarter. The information technology sector is up 11.4%, and the communication services sector is up 10.7%. On a related note, the yield on the 10-year note has dropped 28 basis points this quarter to its current level of 1.46%. And as a reminder, this was on June 30th. Uh, that move has aided the uh, resuscitation of growth stocks as leaders in the broader market. To that end, the Russell 1000 growth index is up 12% this quarter versus a 4.4% gain for the Russell 1000 value index. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that you know value, in my opinion, and I think the data will back this up, outperformed from mid-February till about roughly the first week of May is when value was just in vogue. If you were anything growth related, the market didn't want you, they were being sold, value was being bought, you're having this rotation now back into growth. And I think it has some legs, my two cents. 
Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that all value stocks are bad, but if we had to make a generalization between growth and value, I think growth's going to be in vogue for a little while. Yeah. And you're starting to see some of these technology names like Apple and Amazon that have gone nowhere essentially for the past year start to break out of these long bases to all time highs. So, you know, in my opinion, two of the biggest names in the market, that's, um, you know, that's pretty bullish in my opinion. It is. And what's the saying? Um, uh, old Wall Street adage, the, the long, longer, longer the, the base, base, the higher, spa- higher the space. Jenna, do we not just like sometimes finish each other's sentences? <laughs> <laughs> Jenna just said a match made in heaven. I would agree. Um, and then the last thing to note is that banks have started to report this week. So far, they're crushing estimates. Uh, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs reported this morning really strong numbers. Uh, I think they're trading slightly down right now. Um, but, you know, they are in a pretty good position, it seems like, as of right now. just want to throw something out there for listeners. As we start to hit earnings season here later in the month, I do fear in the short term, it's going to be what I call buy the rumor, sell the news. You want to explain what that means for listeners? Yeah. So, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news is in anticipation of a good earnings report. Some names will get bought up into the report and then they have really good news and then they sell off after the earnings report in the after hours or pre-market the next day. Yeah. Um, So it's almost like the good news is getting priced in. And, you know, everyone's asking, well, they just they crushed earnings. Why are they down 5% after? And it's like, well, well, they rallied 15% into earnings. Right, exactly. So they gave three or four of it back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I just want to throw that out there. Sure, we will see more of that. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research that caught our eye from the week. Um, the first thing I had was a tweet from Danny Merkel on July 4th. And Danny said the average stock in North America went nowhere for five years and is up just 14% from the 2018 high. Not exactly what I would call a bubble. And in this instance, Danny is using the value line geometric index when providing this data. And, you know, that index is a mix of roughly 1,700 stocks, Matt, from all the major North American market indexes. And the geometric composite index is equal weighted um, and uses a geometric average and has a daily change closest to the median stock price change. So I guess it's somewhat of a good gauge of, of the average stock or the median stock's performance over the past five years. So, um, you know, I would tend to, to agree with him here. But, you know, the other side of the coin is past five years has been, you know, just driven by these tech names and these growth names um larger cap names right in and, general and there's a lot more names than just the <clears throat> large cap tech names right um so this is talking about you know the average a little bit anything to add here you know i think that with indexing becoming more and more popular over the past decade it has to a certain extent gamed the system that you generally know where the flows are going to go with the market and so for active um, managers like ourselves, we exploit stuff like this. And ultimately what it will do is it will leave pockets of undiscovered, unloved stocks that if people are patient and do their homework and research and hold some of these smaller size companies, they'll eventually, some of those will turn into large size names. Mm-hmm. So just two viewpoints there I want to throw out. Yeah, yeah. Um, The next thing I had was a tweet from Steve Depe on July 6th. And Steve said, everyone knows the phrase sell in May and go away. But if you've followed me long enough, 
You remember my attempts to popularize the phrase, a new all-time high in July is a time to buy for the NASDAQ, at least. (laughs) I love that one. And he says, still undefeated one year later. So he posted this chart um, on Twitter uh, that shows each time the NASDAQ composite index has hit an all-time high in the month of July. I'm salivating over this. This is great. And one year later... Every single time this has happened, returns have been positive with an average of 20.7%. And tell them how many data sets? Uh, 14 times. So, again, smaller sample size, but, you know, hasn't been a negative return yet. So I thought that that was just interesting since, you know, we're starting to see this rotation back into these higher growth tech names. You know, this data, I guess, just makes sense to me. So as a reminder for listeners, the adage of sell in May and go away, let me explain that briefly. So old school Wall Street would say that the weakest statistical months for the market is the summer, in that people actually develop strategies to where they would buy in October and sell in May and be completely out of the market over the summer. This was a thing. And I think that as things have evolved, information flow, etc. Mm-hmm. It makes that narrative in my mind just a wives tale. Right. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. But it's <laughs> man, when we get to May and when we approach May, it is the number one thing that's talked about on CNBC. You know, they can't it, they like can't they can't let it go, can they? No. No, they can't. So, um that's all I had this week, Matt. I'll turn it over to you. I got two this week. We're going to have it a little bit briefer, but I'm going to see what you have to say about this. There's a tweet uh, from Arun Chopra on July 6th um, from Fusion Point Capital, and it shows a chart of the 10-year Treasury yield mark. And this chart will go back roughly about five years. And what it what happened is um, this gentleman put a uh, survey out for a vote back in 2020 during COVID when treasuries were in demand and the yields were really low. And he said, will the 10-year go negative at some point later this year? And overwhelmingly, people said yes more than no. He put out the same survey, Mark, here in 2021 when the 10-year was about 1.7% earlier in the year and said, will the 10-year hit 2% in 2021? And what do you think happened? Overwhelmingly, they said yes. And pretty much when the, these tweets came out, you know, he pretty much nailed the top the, or bottom, t- ticked the bottom when people said things were going to go negative and they didn't. And then ticked the top when they said, you know, is the 10 year going to hit 2% in 2021? Ever since that survey has come out, the 10 year uh, yield has been trending lower. So here's my kind of adage when I when I see this. I still get the feeling in the marketplace that people are saying there's no way the tenure can go any lower. I'm still got that feeling. And so what does that mean? Probably, Probably going to go lower. Yeah. Yeah. I just got this feeling in the marketplace that up until when Treasury started to rally about six weeks ago, roughly, that all of the sellers have sold the sentiment on Treasuries was pretty much as worse as it could get. And in my adage, you now have a momentum rally 
in 10 year. I'm not advocating to do anything on the trade, yes or no. I'm making an observation that it just feels that people are saying, okay, it's at 1.35. It can't go any lower. Guess what? Probably will. Yeah, I think people would be surprised to see how much lower it could go. I mean, if someone sits here right now and says to me, there's no way the 10-year can go below 1%, that's plausible. It is possible that happens. Yeah, I mean, interest rates, and especially, you know, if you put the 10-year on a chart, the 10-year yield that is, you know, since the 1980s has been in just a stair-step downwards uh, trend. Yeah. And, you know, at certain times it rallies and then it'll sell off and it'll rally and sells off. But over the past 20, 30 years, it's sold off, obviously, more than it's rallied. The only other comment I have is, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but if people were truly, truly concerned about inflation for the rest of 2021, the 10 year Treasury would not be acting the way it is. Yeah. Just want to throw that out there for listeners. Yeah. And just a reminder, you know, the 10 year Treasury, the, the price of the bond, you know, moves inverse with the 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 yield the interest rate right so as interest rate on the on the 10 year comes down the bond prices Go rises and, and vice versa yep all right i got one more this is a snippet from an article written by brett arneds from market watch okay and i just want to kind of highlight this quote one consumer survey after another for years has signaled that a significant number of consumers are concerned they won't be financially okay in retirement with Gallup showing just 53% feel they're on track and prepared, which is down slightly from 20 years ago, when in 2001, 59% of workers said <coughs> they expected to be okay in retirement. Which I want to just point out is when, you know, the majority of retirement plans were pensions at that point, right? They really were, Mark. <coughs> so that gave people more confidence that they would have this, this stream of income because it was on you know, the company to provide that, right? Yeah, and I really think it's been a while at that point through they until they haven't really saw a cycle at that point of these old large companies kind of falling from grace. So if you go back to 01, think of what made up the top 10 of the S&P. Exxon, been there for a long time, right? Go down the list, these older companies. I mean, heck, Sears were still a thing in, mm -hmm. in 01. And Sears have been around for decades, so it's just interesting. I think you make a really good point there. So continuing, yet in the end, Gallup also finds that 80% of households that are actually retired report they're doing just fine, suggesting that our fear of the leap into retirement is a bigger gap than actual ability to adapt to retirement life when it comes. So what's the takeaway here, Mark? It's normal to feel unprepared for retirement. Most people do. And it's a completely different way of life. Your yeah. comments. Yeah, I would agree with that because, you know, when when someone comes in and, and they want us to do a financial plan for them, I would say 99.5% of the time they're like, you know, I don't think that we're in a good spot to be able to retire when when we want to. And it's always a conversation. All right, well, let's get all, gather all the data, put this in the plan, run some numbers, and, and we'll see how it comes out. And from my experience, the majority of the time, people are in a better situation than they really think they are. I would agree with that. I think making retirement tangible by looking at the data and trying to minimize the emotional side of it is extremely beneficial 
for for clients. Yeah, yeah, it is. So I think just the again the takeaway here is that it's it's normal to feel un, uncomfortable and and unprepared because it's a completely different way of life, right? Because you're going from having a steady stream of income your whole life to relying on what you've saved and relying on social security and all of these things that sometimes you don't have complete control over. That's a scary thought. Um, but when, when you do something different, it's my opinion that, that it should feel uncomfortable, right? It's like it, a, my analogy is like a golf swing, right? If I'm, if I'm playing bad golf and I get a lesson and I'm working on something to fix in my swing, it's supposed to feel uncomfortable because I haven't been doing it, right? Right. Um, so if it doesn't feel uncomfortable, then I would say that's more of an issue than, than, than not feeling uncomfortable. So, um, so yeah, I just, I think people need to understand that if they feel this way about retirement, that they're in the majority. I think the other thing is when it comes to the market, market news and emotions of the market, I would say, Mark, the closer that an individual gets to stepping away from retirement, the more that that type of news negatively psychologically affects them, mm -hmm. him or her. So an example of this is when someone is 10 years plus away from retirement, they might not be as concerned about what's going on with the market. But if they're within a year from retirement or six months and we have a COVID type sell off uh, February and March of, of 2020, that psychologically is really going to affect them. And I think keeping the mindset that this money is long term, it doesn't matter what's going to happen to the market next month, really happens. It matters what's going to happen in the market over the next decade. You have a solid game plan in place that should not be negatively affecting your psyche. But I understand human nature and I understand why. Yeah, yeah, me too. So moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, uh, this comes from a blog post by uh, Nick Maguli, who we mentioned on the podcast before, um, and it's titled, How Much Do You Need to Be Financially Independent? And this was sparked by a couple of tweets that he saw. So back on June 13th, uh, Cody Sanchez tweeted, contrarian take, 20 million isn't enough for true financial freedom anymore. Inflation plus stupid overreaching regulation plus a need for a plan B equals more money. The next day, Paul Millerid took a view uh, at the opposite end of the spectrum by saying financial freedom is really like 25000 in savings, a retirement account, and work you want to keep doing. So before we go any further, Matt, who's right here, if anybody? So I might not have the answer you're seeking, but I'm just going to be 100% transparent. Okay. All depends upon someone's lifestyle. I, I met with people that are happy, and I'm not exaggerating, on $1,500 a month in their bank account. When we got some that would not do well with anything less than, than 10 grand a month. It's all relative in my world. And I think it is dangerous to make a generalization because of that. Right. So to, to, to me, it's not as much as a, a dollar amount. Yes. Right. Because yes. I, you know, I remember when I was growing up, you know, I'd always ask my parents, like if I saw someone who has a really big house or a really nice car and it's like, are they, you know, mom or dad, are they a millionaire? 
And I wonder now if it's like, is it still the millionaire or is it, is it, Hey, are they, are they a $5 million heir? I guess if that's a word, but I don't think it's a number. It's, it's all about how much you spend. That's right. right. All about how much you spend. Okay. Um, so Nick goes on and says, can you be financially free with only 25,000 and a great job? Yes. If you don't get unlucky, all it takes is one bad break and there goes your financial stability. For example, my cousin sells custom woodwork and did so for years without issue. He always had consistent demand from clients. However, as lumber prices started surging in 2021, he had to put his entire business on hold. None of his clients wanted to pay more than what they were used to paying, despite the fact lumber prices has doubled. This is a perfect example where 25000 plus a job you don't or excuse me, a job you love doesn't guarantee financial independence. Unforeseen circumstances such as job loss, health issues, or other major life events can derail any such plans. So far, I'm in agreement. Yep. On the flip side, there are individuals whose lifestyles are so lavish that even $20 million wouldn't be enough to sustain them. Based on a 2019 survey of consumer finances, having $20 million would have put you in the top 0.4% of U.S. households. Um so he, I mean, I, he's right here because, you know, you can have something like COVID happen and you can love your job and have 25 grand in savings and have a retirement account, but you get furloughed or you get laid off or something happens like that. So there always is a risk to that. Um, so I think, like you said, it all kind of goes back to, to spending. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think as people retire, they might spend a, a pretty good amount, say the first five years of retirement as they accrue maybe some of the toys like a boat, maybe they uh, travel a little bit more. But after that, what I see in real life with our clients is they really don't spend a lot after that. Yeah, no, they don't. And, you know, we go by the the 5% rule here. And I know a lot of people, depending on who you talk to, don't agree with that and say it's 4%. Some people even say 3% on what you can withdraw from your retirement accounts every year to help supplement living expenses, right? Yeah. So round numbers, you know, have a million dollar investment portfolio. We're comfortable providing $50,000 worth of income to somebody. Correct, right? sir. Correct. So if you're someone who has been spending $50,000 your entire life uh, with the, the job that you had, then essentially we'd want you to have a million dollars in the portfolio if you want to continue to spend that. Yep. But if you're getting Social Security and you have a pension or your spouse has a pension um, or any other... F- form of income, you need to subtract that out of you know, what the 50000 and what you're withdrawing from the investment portfolio. So really, if you have you know, 25000 in Social Security, you only need to depend on your portfolio for 25000 to live the way you want to live, right? Hence, your savings number needs to be half a mil. Right, exactly. So it's all relative to what you're spending. But most people, and maybe it's not most people, but a lot of people I talk to they want to, to spend at least this, the same amount of money they've been spending every year in their working years. And for some people, that's not possible, and they have to, to rein their, their spending in. But I think it's a good goal to at least try to strive for spending the same amount that you have been in your working years, because then your lifestyle really doesn't change that much. Yeah, and a biggie, I think, for a lot of people is targeting to have their house paid off by the time they retire to free up that monthly cash flow. Mm-hmm. That's another biggie. Yep, exactly. Um, so a shorter conversation this week, but, um, bet, or excuse me, Nick lays out a lot more in that blog post. So go ahead and check out his blog of dollars, uh, and data. If you want to read more about that, 
Um, anything you want to leave off with before we wrap this up for the week? I think news flow near the end of the month is going to really heat up as we get to the to the real meat of second quarter earnings season. You know, expect some volatility in individual names as they report earnings. Uh, but that's going to be my, my, my main uh, thing okay. uh, to, to, for listeners to note. Okay. All right. So thanks, everybody, for listening to the 106th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We'll be back with you next week for episode number 107. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.